Chapter 8, Being Who I Am. The opening quote for this chapter is from Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everyone else is taken. I must confess that I was pretty pleased with myself for noticing my belief that I could not be who I was and have what I wanted. After all, it was an empowering insight that allowed me to feel certain I was getting somewhere. But I didn't know what it actually meant or that it was only part of the answer I sought until I took a closer look at the statement, being who I am. Now, I don't know about you, but I have no problem with the being part, as I already know about being hungry, full, sad, happy, late, upset, tired, etc. So the being part, when used in conjunction with a qualifier, is easy to get. In the same way, I have no problem with the I am part. I use those words all the time when thinking I am so excited, tired, bored, happy, or when the guy behind the deli counter asks, who's next? Without any confusion whatsoever, I reply, I am. Sounds easy, right? Now, put those two together and tell me what being who I am means. Yeah, I know. All of a sudden, it's not so clear. And why is that? The problem is with the who part, because even though it's used in our sentence as the noun, it's really a question that has never been answered. Yet every single time it's used, we believe that in substituting a name for who, we have answered the question, and yet we never do. Look at it this way. Your mom comes home from the movies to find one of her favorite plates and pieces in the garbage. She marches angrily into the room you share with your siblings and demands to know who broke it. Even though you have no problem ratting out the one responsible, doing so does not mean you know who that person is apart from their name and behavior. How then am I supposed to know who I am apart from my name and behavior when I confuse it with what I do when thinking, feeling, believing, and behaving? The whole point of this inquiry is to explore the truth about the who that is central to the statement above. Doing this requires that we proceed from the understanding that nothing creates nor exists by itself, and the fact that there must always be three things present for anything to exist, a subject, an object, and its means of perception, or in other words, there must be a knower, a known, and a process of knowing. From this triune structure, we find that being who I am is a single process that can only be appreciated when seen from three distinct points of view. Being refers to the process of knowing. Who refers to the known in question. I am refers to the knower. The same is true for the second part of the statement. Having refers to the process of receiving. What refers to our knowing about it. And I want refers to the desire of the knower. This seemingly simple statement, being who I am and having what I want, is about the gift of life bestowed and received on the basis of a question of who that is ever seeking its answer. It is with this gift that we come into the world as children, flexible in mind, body, and emotions, and we progress from one experience to another, curious to know. At first we sleep and roll around a lot, and later as we learn to stand, we frequently fall down a lot. But we're not discouraged because we easily let go of what has happened in the past and start fresh again each time. Because of this, we may appear fussy, angry, or happy one moment and sad the next, but we do so without fear remorse, guilt, or self-consciousness, and we do not hold back or edit what we experience because we have no reason to. We simply have this experience and then move on to that one because we don't identify who we are with anything in our world. Instead, we reside in the sanctuary of ourselves as a being that is participating as a point of view to life. This flexibility fades over time as we begin to remember things based on the reactions they engender in others. We begin to forget who we are as we learn to correlate the information our environment provides us about what will bring us love, comfort, or safety. 
It is this shift in focus that requires us to suppress those things that are deemed undesirable in lieu of those that conform favorably to the opinion of others. In short, we identify with our experiences rather than simply regarding them as our information about the world. And every time we do this, a part of us is invalidated. It is from this process that our fear, anger, and resentment arise, and nowhere else. Most will not remember this taking place. Yet many of us have become stubborn or ill-mannered and have acted out as we attempted to restore our freedom from the process of invalidation through identification. Yet we continue to mistake the content of our experience for who we are, not just because we acquiesce by doing what others want, but equally so when we resist their dictate. This is because in either scenario, we remain identified with our experience as evidenced by our need to defend, hide, or run from it. Thus begins the loss of freedom. So no matter how many times we hear, why can't you be more like your brother, sister, father? We can't. Those positions have already been taken. And even if they weren't, there's no way to get there from here. Until we realize the futility of this, we torment ourselves as we perpetuate the illusion of arriving at a place that does not exist. This is what each of us is very angry about. And why does this make us angry? It exiles us from the truth of ourselves and forces us to behave as if others actually know what is happening on the inside and assumes that we can hide or modify it for them on the outside, where the truth is that any attempt to hide or modify only serves to perpetuate an activity that has no end. It is in sensing this, whether consciously or not, that our anger exists, yet every time we fail, we believe it is because we did not become our other person. Unconsciously, we tell ourselves that had we become smarter, faster, prettier, healthier, holier, or wealthier, we would have succeeded. We make a viciousness of our lives where the appropriateness of our experience becomes the domain of another. Consequently, we distort our ability to trust ourselves in favor of what others have told us we should do to be safe, happy, or successful. The irony of this is that while we are instinctively repulsed when admonished for what we think, feel, and do, we have the audacity to do this to others. How does this work? That the content of our experience is not valid for us, and yet it is the same place from which we pass judgment on others. Seems contradictory, doesn't it? So, not only do we believe the content of our experience is antithetical to our ideas about life and feel compelled to scan every situation for a safe path through a treacherous landscape, we demand others must do the same. Does anyone see the contradiction in this? In an effort to cope with this, many mold themselves into the person they believe will make them safe, and once they remain locked in their imagined identity. Others quit, rebel, or feel confused about what life wants from them, just as many more endlessly plot their escape. It was with this understanding that I watched people hide, edit, and modify what was naturally rising inside of them in favor of their ideas about how they should show up. Each then moved into the larger landscape of the world, exhibiting patterns of behavior crafted long ago, layer upon layer, as a way to create safety in an unsafe world. I remember a painful experience that arose from my need to be validated. It happened at the hands of a friend who had known me for some time. One day, in a fit of frustration, he confessed that my need to talk about myself caused him to always ply me with compliments because he thought that my self-aggrandizement was evidence of my need to be validated. He went on to say that he thought if he could compliment me sufficiently, I would eventually shut up about myself. Ouch. Stunned by the truth, I saw what a fool I'd been in basing my values on his or any other's expression of admiration. This was just another push for me to wake up from the habit of seeking validation when who we are never needs to be validated. It's just our ideas about ourselves that do. 
In my ongoing effort to be who I was, I continued to offer what I knew into every conversation until I realized to my complete and utter amazement that even if it was I don't know, it became the doorway to the best next course of action. If I was engaged in a negotiation, an interview, debriefing, or a search, and found that I did not know what to say or do next, all I had to do was feel into the content of my experience and simply put words around it. What would come out of my mouth would be something like, I don't understand what you just said. I forgot what I was going to say. I don't know where to take the conversation, but I know I'm not finished yet. Then I would fall silent, looking into how I felt and to see what came next, despite the urge to feel the potentially awkward silence. The ironic thing was that because the statement was completely true, it set me free from the need to speak further. Most of the time, the person on the other end of the conversation would sense the truth in my words and would pick up the dialogue as if the responsibility for my understanding rested with them. Over time, it became clear that being a good recruiter did not mean you needed to push conversations towards a recruiting outcome. Instead, the best condition for any relationship occurred when each person relaxed into the communication process as an exploration and remained open to the truth of what came next. And what is the goal of such an exploration? To discover what naturally arises in the moment, of course. We do not need to bend arms, convince, or cajole. And why there is always an initial point of departure for every conversation, the outcome is never meant to be static, and we should not try to make it so. All conversations are landscaped to be navigated, and we take the trip by stating who we are and what we want, and then honestly sharing some form of what comes up next. Doing this allows both parties to be free to discover what is true, which invariably delivers them to the same conclusion about whether the business relationship in question served them. It would be obvious if there was a fit or not, making it unnecessary to try to convince another to do something that clearly was not appropriate, no matter how much you wanted the commission. In allowing conversations to run their natural course, I learned that the self-arising content of my experience was self-validating, so the need for others to validate me, which till then had been a never-ending proposition, began to fade. In the past, I would have kept looking to see how others responded to what I said or did, but now let myself be guided by what arose inside of me. Then when I noticed it, I would accept it. And this simple act would lead me to the next thing to either notice or do. In choosing to do this, the true purpose of communication emerged as the act of sharing the content of experience. It was never about convincing, even though this is how it is largely practiced today in the I'm right and you're wrong interaction. This did not mean you could not be passionate, earnest, or even angry. It was just that such emotional states were not there to convince or motivate others to do something, for what others did was their business. But for the speaker, those feelings existed to reveal a hidden relationship concerning their beliefs about themselves and the environment in which it arose. But knowing this did not make it any easier to be me, even though I knew I had embarked on a new and necessary path for my life. By 1982, I was a VP and a partner in the firm with the responsibility to train new talent and manage production. With an office in San Francisco and one in San Jose, we had over 30 consultants. The business was expanding, and so was my misery. It seemed the more I knew, the more I understood what was not working in my life. Yes, I was successful at a job that seemed soulless and did not feed the most important part of my spirit. Yes, I had discovered that speaking from the content of my experience was profound and empowering, even insightful. Certainly, I could look at a list of candidates and know from my feeling those I needed to call, making my job easier while the rest of the work seemed to mechanically bang away on their phones as they dialed for their dollars. But ultimately, it didn't matter that I was good at my job. Truth was, 
I didn't sleep well, frequently suffered headaches, sore throats, and stomach aches, and felt trapped at the prospect of spending more years at a job that had nothing to do with what life was about. Depressed and often overwhelmed, I began to doubt I could make any real headway on my own. Something had to change.